Hey folks, if you've been tuning in over the last couple of months, you have heard all about the Game Time app and how it can save you some serious cash on last minute tickets to sports, concerts, and all types of shows. You have heard about the great deals on upcoming games, the great selection, the easy to touch checkout. Well now, Game Time is hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what to do. Download the Game Time app in Google Play or the App Store, click on the My Ticket section of the app, create an account, and then under the Billing section, redeem code THEATHLETIC. Once again, that's the Athletic, all one word, for $10 off your first purchase. That is free money, people. Credit is only available to the first thousand people who redeem the code, and it expires at the end of the year. That's December 31st, 2019. So make moves quick and score last-minute tickets. breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic i'm max boltman with me is prashant Iyer. Uh, and the red wings played one of their two or three worst games of the year today on sunday afternoon and what is maybe the most amazing thing about it is that because of the lions game played uh earlier this afternoon in detroit there have to be a non-zero amount of our listeners out there who spent their Sunday watching the Lions get blown out by the Bucks, and then walking over to LCA and watching the same thing on skates. Yeah, I, I caught some of the Lions game, and I think at one point the the team had a negative amount of passing yards at a non like at a non trivial amount of time had elapsed, and I think the team was at negative two passing yards and finished with like fifty six yards in the first half. I mean. That was a team. I mean, they were playing the Bucks. I mean, Jameis turns the ball over every other uh, possession. They didn't have Mike Evans. You didn't have Chris Godwin. Man, that was ugly. But you know, the the surprising thing was as as bad as the Wings were. I'm I'm not sure that they uh, surpassed the Lions' level of atrociousness earlier today. No, especially the first two periods. Uh, like I was talking to people in the press box, and kind of what we were concluding was this has an outside shot. To rival the Toronto game if, if, if things go badly in the third period. I mean, the score wasn't as out of hand. I don't think the shot share was out of hand to the same, quite the same degree as it was against Toronto, uh, but it can't have been that far off. So interestingly, by Evolving Wilds, uh, five on five expected goals for percentage, the Wings finished the game at 19.4%, which is actually far worse than the Toronto game. And it's actually the second lowest number recorded by any team in the league this year, save just Winnipeg against San Jose back on November 1st when they only had 18.8%. So statistically speaking, this may have been the Wings' worst performance um, of the year. It just didn't look as bad because, number one, in that Toronto game, the Wings actually gave up five expected goals and allowed six in. So they just gave up so much quality and a lot of those went in. And so I think that made that one feel a lot worse. But, you know, through the first 50 minutes of this one, it was right there with that. Yeah, and Jeff Blaschel came into the postgame press conference and and kind of similarly put it on the same level as that and said basically, you know, there have been a lot of games that he thinks they've played where 
he felt they played it tighter than the score indicated, and this one kind of the opposite. The score just did not reflect at 4-2 to two how lopsided this game was for at least the first, I don't know, 50 minutes or so. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not like the Wings didn't have chances. In the first period alone, they had three power play opportunities where they could have, you know, with the way the power play had been clicking coming into this game, they were 7 for 28 over their last nine games, uh, so basically a 25% success rate. They had three chances in the first period to really take a stranglehold of the game and just failed miserably on all of the power plays. They really struggled to enter the zone with possession. They struggled to get anything of substance towards the net. Um, you know, Jack Campbell, the Kings goaltender, almost had a, a night off. It almost reminded me with, with Chris Osgood commentating the game. That's what the game looked like for Chris Osgood when he was playing in 95-96 and really for a lot of years with the Wings when he saw 10 or 15 shots in a game just because his team always had the puck. And I'm, I'm certain Jack Campbell felt that way to a certain extent, but it's not like the Wings didn't have chances early on to take control of this one. No, and it was, you know, the power play I think was like anything. It was just, it was... It maybe it maybe it puts the spotlight a little more on, but I, like it was symptomatic of everything that was going wrong for them. You know, it was it was passing, it was skate. Like it just seemed like everything. Yeah, I mean the skating in particular. You bring up Athanasi was a guy who it just seemed no matter what he was trying, he was always losing his edge. So I don't know if there was um, something else uh, with respect to ice quality or just Athanasi's gear in particular. But yeah, it really seemed like. The Wings just struggled to put anything together. And, yes, they're on the second night of a back-to-back, but so were the Kings. Um, and so, you know, you would have hoped for a little bit more effort or competitiveness in this one. And then, you know, after that first period gets through and the Wings are down one nothing, and they failed to convert on three power play opportunities, they have their trademark second period lull where the Kings at one point ran the shot total to 24-8. to uh, and the Wings actually went 12 or 13 minutes in between shots on goal in the second. And by the time they actually got their next shot on goal, they were down 3 nothing. And so it's just real tough to fight back at that point when you're not even able to get a puck on net. Yeah, I mean, I'm, at one point I made the joke uh, to the person sitting next to me in the press box. I was saying it. It's nice that uh, the Leafs let Sheldon Keefe coach the Kings on his off days right now, which is <laughs> it's pretty much how it looked. I mean, there were a couple of shifts where – you know how? What were the Red Wings even going to do? They couldn't get the puck. They couldn't get it. Deep, you know, they couldn't possess it into the zone. It seemed like any time they got it over the ice, they were just so desperate to make a change after defending that they just had to dump it deep and then put a new, new set of guys out there. Yeah, and it wasn't like it was a particular line or two that was getting hemmed in. This was all four lines for Detroit. They were all equally getting rolled. Um, I thought Athanasiev's line in particular really struggled through the first two periods. Um, you know. Very interestingly, going back to that 5-on-5 expected goals for percentage, um, which measures kind of the quality of shots for and against and takes that percentage of the shots uh, that are for that player's team, he was at 0% through two periods. And from a Corsi 4 percentage, which measures the quantity of shots taken, he was at 0%. That third line did absolutely nothing. Um, him and Glenn Denning and Helm, that third line just got absolutely rocked, but you know, to their defense, none of the other lines were marginally better. And so I thought it was just a uniform thumping by the Kings uh, who really came to play. What's most interesting about it is that I think, obviously, it was really bad. And I'm not going to compare the, the, what I'm about to, the game I'm about to compare it to, to it quite so directly. But I don't think the difference in the Red Wings play from Saturday in Montreal, a game that they won 2-1 and very nearly won 2-0, to 
was all that much better than this one in L.A., which we're putting up there with their worst games of the season. You're spot on. Uh, you know, again, if you bring this back to a statistical standpoint, on Saturday in Montreal, the Wings 5-on-5 five five expected goals for percentage is 27.8. Um, you know, I said they're 19.4 against the Kings. That's marginally better. And honestly, the only reason the Wings get to view this weekend any differently is because Jonathan Bernier played out of his mind yeah. uh, against Montreal. I mean, he, he absolutely made several high-quality saves. And if not for that Tatar seeing eye shot that got all the way through from the point with under a minute left, I mean, you're walking away with a shutout on a – you know, on 43 shots there. And so Bernier is really the only reason we get to view that Montreal game differently because it certainly could have been just as bad, if not worse, than the Kings game on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, and they get a couple of, obviously, pucks to go in. And I think sometimes you hear people say that, you know, what was the difference? Well, one team score, the puck went in for one. This is what that looks like in practice. It's like Montreal, by all rights, probably should have won that game three or four to two. Uh, the Red Wings end up winning it two to one and very easily could have won it two to zero, uh, were it not for that one kind of weird one that they eventually got to go in. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I like, um, so if anyone who's ever visited Money Puck, uh, it's another one of the statistical websites out there, uh, for all the games on there, they actually have a deserve to win-o-meter where effectively, uh, what they do is they, they take the way that those teams played and they simulate that over a thousand simulations and then show the percentage of games that that team would have won. Uh, and so for the Montreal game, Montreal wins that game about 74% of the time, you know, all else being equal, if that over a 1,000 simulations. And then you go to the Kings game on Sunday night, the Kings win that 81% of the time. And so really those two games aren't all that dissimilar, but, you know, to your point, Max, uh, the Wings score first. You know, Montreal hit, hit, what, three or four posts in the first couple of periods. Uh, and just weren't able to get one to go by, and then all of a sudden you get the early lar- uh, Larkin picking uh, Shea Weber's pocket to get that puck to Bertuzzi, and the Wings go up early, and then the, the Canadians are just never able to, to get back in into the striking range. If you were going to come up with a positive from the L.A. game, it probably starts and ends with Philip Zadino, who was a positive just by the fact that he was on the ice when the game started, not on the, I guess not literally on the ice, but uh, in uniform when the game started, burning the first year off his entry-level contract, and then he went on to maybe be one of the two or three best Red Wings out there. Yeah, I mean, he was all over the place, and I think he was a guy where, you know, I think Blaschel mentioned this maybe uh, after two games ago um, against the Jets, where he's like, what you're really noticing with Zadine is you're noticing him away from the puck. Uh, I think a lot of us were expecting the high scoring, the the high profile, the high IQ hockey player, but the way that's really manifesting, I think, over the last eight or so games for him is with what he does away from the puck. I think you saw him uh, again fight to you know uh, retrieve loose pucks on the power play. You saw him make excellent closing decisions on the forecheck. You saw him position his stick very well to take away passing lanes. He forced a number of offensive zone turnovers um, that really allow the Wings to to sustain possession and sustain the amount of time they play with the puck. And it's one of the reasons why when we go to measure him from a 5-on-5 expected goals 4 percentage or a, a Corsi 4 percentage, you know, he's right up there at the top of the leaderboard for the Red Wings because he's a guy that's driving play with the way that he is forechecking, getting after the puck, and getting 
uh, and preserving those loose pucks for his team. And so I think that's a really encouraging sign. And then over the last couple of games, you're seeing him finally put the puck in the net. Uh, you know, he scored the goal tonight uh, on a great rebound where he's following through. He wins the battle in the front of the net with the Kings defenseman to get to that loose puck and, and is able to put that one in the net past Jack Campbell and, and you know, go back a couple of nights and he's got a three-point night. Uh, he gets another goal in the other game and all of a sudden he's got seven points in eight games and you're going, hey, this kid looks really, really good right now. Yeah, I, I wrote a story in October that I think some people kind of rolled their eyes at, and I understand, you know, based on the timing of that, why that was the case. But the premise of it was it was kind of about the evolution of, of a skilled young player and, and what it takes and how sometimes it's patience because there's certain lessons they need to learn. Um, and the guy I use as an example is Philip Forsberg. I talked to Philip Forsberg's uh, AHL coach, Dean Avison, who's I think now with Minnesota. And he was just talking about the ways that he saw Forsberg progress and it's uncanny how similar – listen to this quote and just tell me that it's not exactly what you've seen out of Philip Zadina uh, over these last three weeks. He said, a lot of young players and a lot of players in general want the puck, but they don't want to go get the puck. They want people to get it to them. And a lot of times you're best suited to go get the puck. One, because you're likely the closest to it if you've turned it over or you're in that vicinity. And two, you have the skill level to get the puck back once you get into the battle. I think you see in Forsberg's game that tenaciousness now where he's lifting guys' sticks from behind. He's hunting pucks on the forecheck. He has all of those skills developed now through his experiences and his years, obviously, of playing in the National Hockey League. He gets the puck back a lot of times on his own and creates for his teammates as opposed to having his teammates get it back and create for him. That was October that I did that interview. It's two months later, and I think you are seeing that show up in a huge way for Philip Zadina. Yeah, I mean, I think that quote is spot on, and you could basically change, sub out Philip Forsberg for Philip Zadina, and that's effectively what you're seeing. I mean, his compete level away from the puck is really what's making a huge difference, and I think it makes a huge difference for his line mates. And I think as him and Mantha, another guy who's an excellent forechecker, really gets after the puck, kind of as Mantha finds his legs, those two guys on the same line could be a real threat for the Red Wings uh, if they continue to play together, but... I mean, for me, I'm, I think you have to be really excited with the way that he's progressed. I mean, right now you can make the argument that he's one of the wings, you know, four or five best players right now, uh, over the last little bit, uh, with the way that he's competed and with the way that he continues to play. And so I think it's really encouraging that, um, you know, not only have wings fans seen that, but the coaching staff has seen that and the front office has seen it. You know, the decision to play him tonight. Burns that first year of his entry-level contract. Doesn't matter if he goes back to Grand Rapids. Doesn't matter if he stays in Detroit. That first year is getting burned, and you're moving one year closer to negotiating with him. And then from a coaching staff standpoint, I mean, Zadina played the second most minutes at 5-on-5 five five tonight behind Dylan Larkin uh, when we're looking at the wings forwards. And that's not something we're used to seeing. I mean, he played 14 minutes at 5-on-5, five five and Larkin played just a few seconds more than him. Uh, so I think that really shows you the amount of trust that Blaschel had in his game tonight and, and how much he's really progressing both in the eyes of, you know, the team, the coaching staff, and from a fan perspective. I thought it was most interesting, too. The goal that he scored tonight was not your your typical pretty sixth overall pick goal. It was just a be in the right spot, and if the puck comes to you, bang it home kind of goal. That's, you know, I, I, that's that's the kind of goal that I think coaches talk about when they talk about you, you'll you get rewarded uh, for competing real hard. You'll get rewarded for it in ways kind of you don't expect. It'll, it'll show up on the score sheet. That's why, like, you'll see, like, a Luke Lindening goal or something kind of like that, and and uh, I think people, are, you know, they see it, and, and I think uh, 
you can you can attribute it to just if you're always hounding the puck, if you're always competing, always crashing the net, you get rewarded with those goals. Whereas if you're staying out on the perimeter looking for your perfect shot lane, sometimes they don't come. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And I think the important thing is placing when that goal happened. Because if you fast, you know, if you rewind just a couple minutes, Zadina's the one who makes the turnover at center ice that lets the Kings go up 4 nothing. For a lot of young players, you're going to let that get down on you. Sometimes, depending on the coaching staff, that player may not see uh, the ice for several minutes. But no, Zadina gets right back out there and he goes right back and he gets the goal. And so I think that was a really encouraging sign is you saw the frustration. He slammed a stick on the ice after that puck ended up in his net when he turned it over. But he comes right back down and gets that goal back uh, just a couple minutes later. And so all in all, I, I think you're seeing great progression from him. It's only been... 10 games, but I, I really think uh, this kid is showing that he's got next level skill. Yeah, I think you raise a good point too about that point about the turnover. He has, you know, he's, he's not been mistake free, that's for sure in these games, but what I think where I think the, the competing away from the puck really comes in is that it allows you to trust a guy who can occasionally turn the puck over. He doesn't have to be perfect if you know that he's going to give Max effort to go get it back in the eva- in the events that he does make a turnover. And certainly Zadina's had some giveaways. Um, he's had some plays where maybe he tried to get a pass out uh, up to the point a little, uh, per, you know, over eagerly, and it leads to a turnover, stuff like that. But if he, if you trust him that he's going to be get, getting back hard and get into position, it, you can feel a lot more comfortable uh, continuing to roll him out. Yeah, that was a huge sign of confidence for me from seeing that uh, in terms of what the coaching staff was thinking because, you know, they they clearly trust him to go back out and make the right plays. And I think the nice thing about him is you're not seeing that skill level get coached out of him, if you will. Sometimes you see these high-skill guys, you know, they try to make a lot of fancy moves. They try to come in with a lot of dangles until they realize the NHL speed is just so fast that you can't execute that unless you're Pavel Datsuk. But you know, even still towards the end of the game, you saw Zadina try to make a nice inside-outside move on a defenseman coming down. And so I think what he's starting to learn how to do is, you know, how to play simple and how to play with that elite skill level and how to kind of find the right time uh, to try certain things and how the coaching staff is trusting him that, hey, if he makes a mistake, I know he's still going to go out there and play a good game. And I can go out and give him 18 minutes on the night. I mean, 18 minutes for... 20 year old kid is awesome. And so I, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way he's looked in these first 10 games. And I think the wings have a real, real gem here. Yeah. I, I think when we talk about the importance of forechecking, you can draw a line to the Montreal game and Dylan Larkin's goal, which I thought was quintessential of, of what you want to see out of a, out of a guy who's kind of your, your emotional leader and, and you're one of your very best players, certainly, if not the very best player. He goes behind the net. Picks Shea Weber's pocket, throws it out front for Tyler Bertuzzi. That ultimately was their first goal. It could have been all they needed based on how good Bernier was. They end up needing one more from Mike Green, but to me that was a quintessential Larkin effort as well. Yeah, and I think that's the guy that you want Zadina learning from, and you're seeing a lot of that with him with the way he gets after the puck on the forecheck. And so I think moving forward, getting to play with Mantha, getting to play with Philpola, uh, potentially even getting minutes with some of these other guys in the top six. I think that's all going to give them the opportunity to build a little bit of chemistry. You started to see that uh, a little bit late in the second period where both he and Mantha had excellent chances that Campbell robbed them on. Mantha had a, a breakaway where he wasn't really able to get the puck to his forehand but still got a good chance. It came on a great saucer pass from Zadina, and then Zadina had an excellent chance to score uh, on a give-and-go play with Mantha and Philpola, and, and that one got robbed. But 
Uh, I think the more he gets to play with those and, and model his game after those guys like Larkin, like Mantha, who really know how to get after the puck, uh, I think he's going to get to be a better and better player. I was going to say let's move on from Zadina and get back to the, the game that we almost did an emergency podcast for just because <laughs> it was the Red Wings finally breaking their losing streak. But if I say that, it, it's going to be a little short-sighted because Zadina was very good in that one too. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got three points in that game. He becomes uh, the third youngest Red Wing to record a three-point game behind Iserman and Lane Lambert. Uh, so that's a nice list to be on. Um, and, you know, he, he had, again, an excellent game there. He scores on the power play. He sets up uh, both of Fabry's goals. Uh, one was a little bit of a lucky bounce, but... Uh, the other was a great pass uh, for, for Fabry, and so he just played so, so well, and he's been such a big boost uh, to the Red Wings' power play. I do think the addition of Mantha back on the on the power play has bumped Zadina kind of off that top unit uh, and down onto the second unit, which we'll kind of see how that unit figures out its chemistry a little bit because they really did struggle against the Kings. Um, but... You know, aside from that, I thought he was excellent in the Jets game, and and that was a game where the Wings were able to to make their own luck and get the bounces, and that was a game they deserved to win. Yeah, that one was interesting. I think Robbie Fabry really stood out in that one. Philip Hronik certainly with a three point night uh, stood out in that one, uh, but just an overall game where it felt like on any occasion where the Red Wings could go into a, a locker room after a game and say that they thought they played well enough to win and didn't get the bounces, this was kind of the... Not that they didn't play well enough to win, they did, but they got all the bounces that they should have maybe felt like they should have gotten over the last three weeks. Yeah, I mean, you had goals going in off of Jets defensemen. I think Neil Pionk probably put three goals in for the Red Wings in that game where Helm tries to you know shoot the puck in and it goes off of... Uh, Pionk and then Fabry again tries to, to shoot the puck in, goes in off of Pionk and then there's a later shot, uh, where I think Zadina shot even nicks Pionk in front of the net and it goes in, into the net. And so it was all the bounces that you get, but you get those bounces when you are dictating play, dictating the tempo and controlling the puck. And, and that was a game where the Wings did that. Their five on five expected goals for percentage was just a shade under 60% in that game. Now contrast that with the 19 and the 28 uh, that we just talked about in the Kings and Canadians games respectively. And you can see there was a huge difference uh, in the way the Wings played uh, in that Jets game. The thing I'm most curious to see, and I, I kind of expected them to win against LA because they've been so streaky of a team this year. It seems like they can win three or four in a row and then have a real long rut basically when they start losing. I'm most interested to see with a beatable Columbus team coming to town on Tuesday uh, how do they respond to this one? Is it the start of another streak? Because after Columbus, it's going to get real tough again. Yeah, I mean, Columbus, again, we talked about Columbus was the the start of the last streak where the Wings had to figure out, all right, if they couldn't beat Columbus and they couldn't beat New Jersey, they were going to go on a long losing streak. And well, sure enough, they went on a long losing streak. Well, here's your chance to beat Columbus again. Uh, and the Wings, you know, to their credit in that last Columbus game, they were, they were competitive. They held a 3-2 lead in that last Columbus game before they choked it away in the third period. So, you know, I think they'll have a day off on Monday. Mantha's going to continue to find his legs and get better. Um, and, you know, I, I think they should come back out with that same energy. I really do think Zadina has energized that or kind of helped round out that top six to a certain degree. And I think a day off will certainly help him. It's, it seemed like a lot of the Wings guys, not to make excuses for them, were uh, 
Uh, it sounds like the illness was really going around uh, the locker room, so you don't know how many guys were 100% on a back-to-back um, in that setting. So I'm, I'm hopeful that as everyone starts to feel a little bit better, you get that day off, that they're able to come back out against Columbus and, and really uh, show that they're able to rebound here. It's possible, but I think it's it's going to have to be, you know, regardless of everything else, you know, L.A. was on a back-to-back too, and I think L.A. came out and looked in control. I did not see that from the Red Wings until – Maybe the last five, six, seven minutes of this game that they really seem to be able to carry play. Uh, and Columbus is not a team, even though they're not that talented, uh, as they have been in past years. They are a team that, you know, John Thorell seems to get him to, to get up for just about every game. Yeah, I mean, you know that team's going to forecheck hard. They're going to get pucks in behind the defenseman. They're going to make the defenseman turn and skate. They're going to be very physical. Um, and you know that the power play is going to be clicking after they brought in Paul McLean as a consultant. Their power play has been looking a lot better. Uh, so they're, they're a team that can certainly do damage to the Wings. I feel like every time the Wings play them in the recent years, it's been a very competitive game. Uh, and so it's certainly not going to be easy, but uh, the Wings certainly have the, the moxie and I think the talent to, to get it done. And I think as... These as they start to find their game a little bit more and round out some of that talent level, um, I think they'll have a real shot. We should talk about the trade that happened. Uh, well, in the middle of the week, it was not kind of the magnitude that everyone was thinking. While while Steve Eiserman was rearranging the chessboard, taking pieces on and off, whatever exactly it was he was doing, that we still never got a real answer to, other than quote unquote roster management. He ends up trading Oliver Kasky, one of the bigger. I felt like, uh, I mean, not, not huge, but, but seemed, certainly came with some fanfare, uh, additions from Finland last summer. He, he had been the Finnish league MVP. The Red Wings brought him over. I expected him to compete for a job in training camp. He pretty quickly found himself, uh, oftentimes on the other side of the bubble for the Grand Rapids lineup early in the year. So they end up trading him to Carolina for, for Kyle Wood, who has been so far, I believe, a career AHLer. Yeah, I don't think Kyle Woods played a single NHL game up until this point. Um, I will say that that the trade certainly caught me off guard because you know Max, like you said, Kasky, as a uh, as a 23 year old in in the Finnish uh, top league, which is Liga over there. I mean, he was the MVP top defenseman last year, so that'd be akin to somebody winning you know the Hart and the Norris uh, in the NHL. Um, so he's that he's coming over as a 24 year old defenseman, high scoring upside. Uh, and all of a sudden, instead of making the NHL team, now he's slotting all the way down into Grand Rapids. And then after the Wings uh, sent down Jonathan Erickson, after they sent down Dennis Cholowski, after they sent down Madison Bowie, all of a sudden you've got nine defensemen in Grand Rapids and Kasky's like eight or nine on that list right now. And, you know, to be fair to Kasky, or I should say to be fair to the Gr- Griffins coaching staff, it's not like Kasky had been dominating or had been you know playing at a really high level he was really struggling um from what i had been able to gather what i've been able to see he hadn't really found that same game that he was playing in Liga. and i think again it's a bit of an adjustment to the north american style of play north american size of ice um but it seemed a little premature to me to to give up on on a guy with that pedigree only a handful of months in so i do wonder if some of this was more of a similar to that Fabry trade where, hey, right now I don't have ice time for you and I can't really make ice time for you. You're here on a one-year deal. 
I'm happy to move you somewhere that will have ice time for you. It kind of had that vibe for me. Especially as Dennis Chalowski had been sent down, Madison Bowie had been sent down, I believe, right before that. Um, you know, the lineup fills up pretty quick down there, right? You're not going to take Brian Lash off out of the lineup down there. Joe Hicketts is their first power play quarterback most of the time. Uh, it, it, spots get light pretty quick when, when things get to that place, especially when Moritz Sider is there. He will obviously be gone for the World Juniors for a little bit. But, yeah, certainly I, I think it probably would have been tough for, for Oliver Kasky to get the kind of, not just the kind of ice time, but the kind of roles that he was going to need. Like, when you got an offensive defenseman like that and he's not in either of your power plays, uh, the writing is on the wall, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like it was a poor situation that if he, you know, because he wasn't able to make the wings out of camp, uh, I think Grand Rapids was always going to be a, a tough situation or a tough spot to get a foothold because you knew the Wings were going to want to showcase Sider to a certain extent. And then having the veterans like Hicketts and McElrath and Lashoff there, those are guys who have been you know, consistent AHL players, and they're not really going to be taken out of the lineup um, unless they need to be for the AHL veteran role down there. But and then after that, you still got Gustav Lindstrom down there. I mean, there was just so many different guys down there who needed ice time. You've seen now Kasky moved out. You've seen Billy Sarayarvi moved out. Um, and I think you're bringing in a guy in Kyle Wood who, while he's 23 years old, so actually a little bit younger than Kasky, he's six foot five, 236 pounds, right shot D-man. Uh, he has been in the AHL his entire career. Um, and so maybe a little bit more comfortable uh, if he does need to sit out some games or if he doesn't have the, the top offensive roles, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what he does in the Carolina system. That's obviously, you and I think, one of the smarter front offices in the league, with, with especially how they operate with prospects. So curious to see if he becomes anything there. Maybe that's a sign that uh, you know, there's at least one other team out there who thought this was a guy worth, worth investing and taking a chance on, and uh, maybe, maybe he's able to get more opportunities with the checkers. Yeah, and the Checkers are a great team. I mean, they're they're the defending AHL champions, and so if uh, if Kasky's able to get some ice time there and maybe work his way up towards the top of that roster, uh, you know, he is competing with uh, Jake Bean to get some ice time. So he won't necessarily be the high profile um, number one bona fide guy down there, but he'll still have uh, a, a plenty big role, and I think he'll be able to showcase his talents a, a bit better than he was. Uh, in Grand Rapids. Do you expect anything out of Kyle Wood, or is he kind of a, a body in Grand Rapids for you? You know, it's really interesting because when you look at his stats and you look at his profile, you go, wow, how did this guy not crack the NHL yet? So, you know, as a 20-year-old, as a he's, uh, so this is 2016-2017, he's the AHL, he makes the AHL All-Star game as a rookie. Uh, has 43 points in 68 games as a defenseman. And you go, how did that guy not transition to the NHL? And I think part of it is that he's not really had any sort of stability. Um, he's drafted in 2014 by Colorado, but then he's traded to Arizona. Arizona trades him to San Jose. San Jose trades him to Carolina at the beginning of the year. And then Carolina now trades him to Detroit. So that's the fourth time the guy's been traded, and he's been it's been five years since his draft. Uh so he, I don't know that he's necessarily been able to find a stable spot or stable system to develop in to really transition. I think he had his best success um, in the Arizona system, which is back in 2016, 2017. But, you know, we'll see. I think looking at some of the scouting reports and video on him, he's a, he's a big defenseman. Skating's a bit choppy in terms of 
Uh, it's more of a lumbering skating stride as opposed to an efficient skating stride. Um, but he's got a big shot. Obviously, at 6'5", 236, he can put a lot of muscle on it. And he, he's got a high IQ game. I'm not sure, though, with his foot speed that he'll transition to the NHL. Um, but I am certainly happy to be proven wrong on a guy that I've only seen some video on. So uh, more to come on him, but I'm not super high. I just think he's a guy right now who's going to be a little bit more comfortable in Grand Rapids. Yeah, and a couple other Grand Rapids guys who are going to be taking a little bit of a time away from the team to go to the World Juniors. Moritz Seider for Team Germany, Joe Valeno and Jared McIsaac. Now, is it official or are they just in in kind of pole position to make Team Canada? Yeah, so Canada did uh, their first round of cuts. And so my understanding is these are the guys that they're going to actually take to the World Juniors. So that being Valeno and McIsaac, both those guys survived um, the cuts, which the cuts were a little bit interesting. I mean, they, Canada, Team Canada really cut some some high-profile guys like Thomas Harley, who's a great defenseman, um, first-round pick for the Dallas Stars last year. I thought he was a guy who certainly could have been on that team. Um, and New Hook. A couple of other – yeah, you know, Alex Newhook was cut. Cole Perfetti, who's a 2020 yep. draft eligible, a likely top five, top ten pick this year. He didn't make the cut either. Um, so very interesting, but both Valeno and, and McIsaac survived those cuts from Team Canada. And so my understanding is that's the team that they're going to take over to the World Juniors. Whether or not they uh, play all the time is, is a different question. And then obviously, like you mentioned, Moritz Seider, uh, as we expected, named to Team Germany. My expectation is he likely captains that team as he did last year. So a couple of guys to watch over in uh, – over in uh, the World Juniors. And also another one to add there is uh, Otto Kivenmack. He also made the final cuts for Team Finland as well. It'll be interesting to see what what it is with McIsaac and Valeno, but I, I think they probably will probably be part of the – or at least have a good case to be on Canada's leadership too as returning players. You never know how the fact that McIsaac's had the shoulder uh, injury for the first part of this year that he was recovering from will factor into maybe his, his playing time or how much he's able to do. But certainly Valeno I expect to be first-line center, potentially the captain. Yeah, Valeno certainly could be captain. Might be first or second line. I, I want to say Barrett Hayton was loaned by Arizona to to Canada, and I think Hayton might slot in on the top line over Valeno. But uh, we will we'll see where how Canada chooses to play it. Either way, you, the expectation is Valeno is going to be playing a top six role a, in a big minute role for Team Canada, and so he will get to play with some highly highly skilled guys. Potentially Alexi Lafreniere. Yeah, I think the initial um, projection of the lines had Lafreniere with, up with Hayton, but you know Lafreniere last year played with Valeno, and I, I think to a certain extent you might see uh, that happen again, given that they played pretty well together. Yeah, certainly be interesting to watch. Uh, anything you want to talk about from the last week or so then before we go to the listener questions? No, I think we hit most of the big news stories, so uh, we'll probably just hit the questions now. All right, sounds good. First one is from Luke James Larson, whose question is simply, Berchi. This, this is a great question. So today the Vancouver Canucks put Sven Berchi on waivers, Berchi being a 27-year-old forward who came up in the flame system. He's a highly, highly skilled guy. Um and then had a decent amount of success with the Canucks. But for some reason, you know, he was he was waived. He's a guy that 
a lot of people around the league are kind of going, huh, he should really be a regular NHLer. There's no reason for him to be out of the NHL given his skill set. So, you know, for a team like Detroit, is he a guy that you take a, a flyer on? Well, so for starters, he's got this year and next year remaining on his contracts. His contract's at $3.36 million, uh, as the cap hit, if I'm remembering that correctly. So it's not a awful cap hit, and at 27, it's not a bad value to pay for the guy. I mean, the guy certainly looks like to be, he could be a decent scorer, you know, put you up 35 points or so, which is kind of fringe second line, maybe upper third line production, um, and has relatively decent on-ice impacts uh, over the course of his career. And so he's certainly a guy I think you could take a shot on. Now, the downside for, for Detroit is if you do this through the waiver claim, you're going to add another contract. You're not necessarily going to remove anybody. And at that point, it's going to become a little bit more difficult because uh, if you're going to send Christopher N down to Grand Rapids at that point, then you're going to talk about are you scratching Adam Ernie or Brendan Perlini, two of the other guys that you've already acquired this year. So I do wonder if if, Bar- if, uh, if Berchi clears waivers, would the Wings be better served trading for him, similar to what they did with Alex Biega? So Biega, if you remember, actually went on waivers the week prior. The Wings did not claim him on waivers, but then were able to make a deal uh, involving a player at that time to be able to to make some of the roster moves work. So I think in that scenario, it makes a little bit more sense just because I don't know that the Wings are going to want to be scratching Adam Ernie or Brendan Perlini consistently if they were to pick up a guy like Berchi. I already scratched Perlini uh, tonight on, on Sunday against the Kings. Yeah, I mean, they scratched him tonight. I don't know if it'll be consistent given that it looks like they're rotating a little bit with N and Ernie and Perlini. But uh, I think if you send N down to Grand Rapids, you're going to consistently scratch Ernie or Perlini. Already in, in the top nine, it's hard to find a natural spot for Sven Berchi unless there's going to be someone on the way out. Yeah, exactly. That's where I think you look at the scenario where you hope he clears, uh, and then if he clears, you see if you can make a, a deal with Vancouver for a, for a player to try and free up that roster spot. Yeah, if you're going to do it, I think it's got to be something in that mold because you're not going to play him over Zadina, Mantha, Fabry, Athanasiu. Realistically, they're not going to play him over Darren Helm. Helm's like the only plus player on the roster. So at that point, he's he's either a fourth-line winger for you uh, and you're scratching a guy like Perlini or Ernie, something like that, uh, or... Or you're scratching him, and then what was the point of adding him? Exactly. Yep. All right. So I hope that answers that. Uh, next question is from D. Van Howe, who says, holiday whiskey recommendations. Not phrased as a question, by the way. Not phrased as a question. No, just just needs holiday whiskey recommendations. Uh, I think whiskey recommendations, the nice thing about whiskey is you, you can find something good at literally any price level, whether you're shopping at under 20 bucks you're shopping at under 50 bucks or you're shopping you know north of 100 bucks there's really anything um in those price ranges and so under 20 bucks i mean uh stuff like ancient age woodford reserve four bear uh, four roses uh small batch those are all right around that 20 dollar range those are good things to to bring over for a white elephant to bring over for a you know small get together with friends uh, that's good stuff. If you're looking in the in the 30 to 50 range, you get your bottles of Eagle Rare, you get your Russell's Reserve single barrels, 
there's a lot of good stuff there. And then if you're going real, real high end, uh, you know, I'm always a big fan of the rye whiskeys up in that 60 to 100 range. You can get your Willet rye four year, you get your whistle pigs and you'll, you can call it a day. You've done a good job at that point. So definitely would recommend those. If you're looking for something that basically tastes like Christmas in a bottle, it's the High West Midwinter's Night Dram. So, Go buy some whiskey, enjoy it over the holiday, enjoy it with family. That's what it's supposed to be all about. I called Prashant uh, on Friday afternoon on my way to a Christmas party that I needed a white elephant for to ask him what kind of whiskey I should get, and he didn't give me anything nearly that thorough. So just all of you should know he cares a lot more about you than he does me. (laughs) To be fair, Max goes, $20, I have a bottle of Woodford Reserve in my hand. Is this the right thing? And I said, yes. It sounds like Max wasn't changing his mind. I wasn't. I was just hoping that I was hoping for a little bit of confirmation, uh, just just to confirm that I was I was next in line. Like, I, what was I going to do? Exactly. Like, you weren't going to bail on the line. And be like, oh wait, let me go r- walk all the way back through the store and see count off every bottle here. I also uh, from that party, I should add, took home uh, the bottle of whiskey that uh, another uh, athletic writer brought, and uh, actually, I didn't take it home because we finished it at that party. So. Well, that's strong work. It's a good night. It's a good night. Uh, all right. Next one. Uh, via Hamifer. Are the Griffins underperforming? Is it coaching? Um, I think this is an interesting one, and I, I'm going to let you go first, but I've got some thoughts as well. Yeah. I mean, coming into the season, I think everyone was like, wow, the Griffins are loaded because Zadina was down there. Valeno was down there. You know, Sider was down there. Lindstrom, Kasky, a lot of really high-profile players uh for the wings and i i think the interesting thing was like everyone's going okay these guys should run the table i mean they should be very very good and as it stands as of tonight the griffins are 11 14 and 3 they're seventh out of eight in their division they're allowing the most goals against in the ahl um and so you you kind of step back and go huh that's uh that's not what i was expecting when the year started and I think from my standpoint, I think the, the AHL is a very fascinating league because I think there's one of two ways that you see those teams coached. And one way is where the team is effectively coaching to win every single game, making all the decisions to win every single game, looking more at how do I get the point, basically operating as a professional hockey team that's not necessarily factoring in kind of the obligations or requests to a certain extent um, from maybe the NHL team. And I think that's honestly how the Griffins were operated uh, for a while, which was where maybe the incentive was more winning, winning, winning was always kind of that number one goal. Um, but then you see some AHL teams that I think are a little bit more concerned with player and prospect development within certain systems and, and ideas. And I think that's been a little bit... Uh, kind of practiced by some other teams in the AHL. And I do wonder, and Max, this is where I'm going to defer to you, is that the case? Do you think that it's the, the Griffins are just putting a lot of these prospects in these higher role scenarios and they maybe typically would do if the focus was solely on winning the game simply because the, the impetus here is we want to get player development and prospect development going um, 
and we're less concerned that if we're winning every single game. I, I think you can look at the roster and have your answer right there. Like it's the youngest Griffins roster I can remember seeing. Um, they still have like Chris Terry and Matt Pumple, but I think you know generally this is a team that is laden with prospects and really young guys who are learning a lot. And I think that is a difference that you've seen from past Griffins teams. Add in the fact that maybe the most far along prospect they have, Michael Rasmussen, has missed like the last several weeks. I think he's only played like nine games this year. And one of their veterans, Matt Pumple, missed a bunch of time. One of their veterans, Dylan McElrath, has been in the NHL a bunch of the time. I think it makes perfect sense where they're at. I don't think it's coaching. I think, if anything, it's probably like Prashanth is alluding to, the way the roster was constructed represents what is, in my opinion, a little bit of a shift from how they've assembled the roster in the past. Um, and I certainly think it's a really talented team, but it's it's probably not a team that's built in the way that's going to win as much in the AHL as some of the Griffins teams in the past, where you think about a guy like Wade Megan, that's a guy the Griffins miss a ton. You know, um, you think about on the on the back end, um, they still have Brian Lashoff, they still have Dylan McElrath. Um, you know, I think they're okay back there. Mort Sider has been awesome in goal. I think Calvin Pickard hasn't been as as good as I expected him to be, and certainly as good as he looked in the first couple of games. I thought he looked like he was going to be a perfect fit. That hasn't been the case. And then Philip Larson, who obviously was the prospect lawyer they were hoping to have there, wasn't good at all. So I think there's all kinds of reasons. I I, I don't tend to think that you know you know Ben Simon had a, had a roster there last year that I think was was pretty good, and they didn't get that far with it. I, you know they kind of just slumped at the end of the season. I think at the wrong time. But um, to me, it's it's as much about roster construction as anything else. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. And this is just one of the symptoms of it. Yeah, that's ex- that's a great point, and I think you and I talked about this at the beginning of the season, that there's been a shift with some of these teams like Carolina and Toronto who are now using the AHL as it is intended to be, which is a development league, and they're starting to construct these their uh, AHL teams with these heavy prospect-laden teams as opposed to kind of recruiting the AHL veterans, the Wade Megans, the Jake Chelios, the Dylan McElrath. They're, they're not necessarily recruiting those guys and signing those guys to come come in and play. They're going to actually hold those spots for their prospects. They're calling over the guys from Sweden. They're calling over the guys from Finland. And they're saying, hey, come in and come in and play. We want to see what you look like here uh, and that's not a bad thing, and that's that's likely a good thing because next to the NHL, the AHL is the best league in the world. Um, and so that's if you want to see these guys develop and prosper, that's the next natural step uh, for a lot of the prospects. And so I do think a little bit of it is simply in how the roster is constructed. You know, Max, as you pointed out, this is a, a far younger Griffins team. Uh, than we're accustomed to seeing. And then obviously the roster shuffle on the back end this year with Erickson going up, Erickson coming down. You've had McElrath up in Detroit. You had Hicketts up in Detroit for an extended stint. You had Chalowski up, then down. You had Sider miss a couple games. You've had, I mean, you've had just so much player movement, player injury um, up and down that I do think it's it's even been hard to just build chemistry within the Griffins team just given how much of a revolving door that the back the back door has been kind of for on the defensive side like i don't know if they've iced the same six defensemen for more than uh maybe four or five games i think it's been rotating so much with the number of guys they've needed to get in 
as well as all the guys getting called up to Detroit. Important to note, though, that is just reality in the AHL. That's not unique right. to this year at all. Like that, that team. If you're going to succeed in the AHL, you're going to have to get real good at dealing with stuff like that. Because in, in addition to um, NHL call ups and injuries that affect the roster, you've also got the veteran rule to manage. I don't think that's probably as big a problem for them this year, just because they don't have quite as many. Um, but it's it is an absolute reality of that league that you are going to have guys in and out of the lineup. I think it's not a coincidence that you've seen them catch their stride a little bit more as Taro Hirose joined that lineup. I think he adds a nice dimension, and I think he'll be a welcome fit there. Um, he had a great game a couple nights ago, including, I believe, the overtime game winner. Um, yeah. So I think, especially as you see some of these Red Wings who are who are now heading down as the Red Wings get healthy and, and stop having so much room in their lineup, um, you'll see a... a a correlated rise in the Griffins. And that's just something that I think fans, if you want the uh, AHL team to be a development lab more than an entity in itself, which I'm not always 100% um, sure is, is is uniformly the best case. I think there is an advantage in having a team that, that prospects don't feel like, you know, they kind of are going to just walk into to first power play minutes, stuff like that. But um, but certainly, and I'm not saying that's the case right now either, but I think the roster, the way the roster is built certainly lends more toward that. Um, if you're going to have it a roster built like that, you're going to probably have to be okay with, with some losing streaks too because these guys are learning how to be pro hockey players. Exactly, and I think I think that's just where it's at. Reset the expectations. This isn't a powerhouse team, but this is a team that's learning. And they could be in the future if uh, you know if a lot of these guys stick around. Like if 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 Valeno is still there next year, and I know people don't necessarily want to indulge that thought, but let's say for example, Rasmussen goes up and wins a center job um, on the Red Wings next year, and, and Valeno's back as he's been playing. I think as as mostly the first line center um there or or at least you know sometimes is is listed that way on 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 sheets or or in ice time um if Valeno's back there for his second year you saw the the step forward that Philip Sedina made in the AHL this year I don't think he was dominant but he was better for sure and I think um if Valeno's back there next year and a lot of guys are back next year maybe you can see the prospects as they do start to hit that next stride in their game then you have a lot of success as a team too but um, I just think it's kind of a reality of it, and I'm sure the the Griffins um, aren't going to let it, you know, from from a coaching perspective, I don't think they're going to get complacent with that. They want to win, too. I, I know the Griffins coaching staff, having spent um, a day kind of behind the scenes there last year for a story on their playoff run, um, those guys want to win. So I, I don't expect they'll be satisfied with it, but I do think it's something that uh, people kind of have to understand. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, next one is from many a pe- many a person on Twitter says, "Should the Red Wings play Robbie Fabry at center?" I kind of forgot that he had been a center, uh, but I do remember that from when he first came over, and that that's something that I think he's done before. Would you put him there? Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting because I was trying to track back when was the last time this guy legitimately played center, and it's it's really hard to figure this out from from game logs and and from uh, statistics. One one kind of cursory method you can use, which as Blashell has noted to us this year, isn't necessarily a perfect method, is who's taking the face off on the line. Um, Fabry for his career has taken like seventy face offs, so. I don't know, at least if I'm using that, which again, it's an imperfect metric, that he's really played a whole lot of center at the NHL level. Um, I think he's maybe dabbled with it uh, a bit in St. Louis, but I don't know that he's consistently done it. Now, certainly in juniors, he did it a fair bit more, but I mean, the whole thought process that I've been getting from a lot of people who asked us this question was, 
you know, take Philpola out of the top six, put Fabry in at center there, and then bring Athens to you up so that effectively your six best players are playing in, in the top six. Um, you know, again, in, in a season like this, I have no problem with trying it out, experimenting with it, but if it's not a position you envision this guy playing long term, if it's not the defensive responsibilities you want to give that guy, and again, Fabry is closer to Athanasiu than he is to Larkin when we're talking about defensive ability. Um, Fabry is much more of that kind of allowing a lot of shots against type player, less con- less of an impact on the on-ice uh, metrics compared to uh, Larkin. He's much closer to Athanasiu in that respect. I don't know that you're going to gain a lot from it. I don't think that's a position for him in the long term. I think he's best suited on the wing as he's demonstrated um, and I think right now you're just going to have to deal with the fact that the Wings don't have a strong second-line center um, to slot in there, and that's what Philpola was honestly brought in for, was to be that bridge. I don't have a problem trying Fabry there, but if you don't think he's there long-term, uh, then I'd just leave him where he's at. Yeah, you got centers coming through the pipeline, so unless you think Fabry's going to be a, a 1C someday, um, I don't I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense. I think Philpola's been fine, actually, for the record, too. Like I think that he's, you know, is has he been a the guy you want as your second line center on a good team no but i think he's he's handling that fine and i think certainly the last 15 20 games actually pretty good there and a stabilizing force for the red wings yeah i mean he's really found his game over the last 15 to 20 games but you know the like you said max there are guys in the pipeline this is a season where you're just riding it out like i said no problem trying fabry there but with valeno coming up with rasmussen coming up maybe you take quentin byfield and he's coming up and so you know, you, you, there's there is talent that is on the way, and I think you just need to bridge this right now and, and kind of get through some of this talent turnover and these talent gaps. If you had to choose between playing either Fabry or Athanasiu at center for a five to ten game stretch, what would you rather do? Ooh, that's an interesting that's an interesting question because with Athanasiu, we have kind of a known commodity. We know what he looks like uh, at center. And Fabry is a little bit more of an unknown. I think given what I know about Athanasiu at center, I would rather try Fabry at center. I don't know that uh, Athanasiu is best suited on uh, at center in terms of the defensive responsibilities. I do think he still kind of has the tendency to chase the puck up too far up the ice and then would have to recover all the way back down. As Blashill's kind of talked about, his centers needing to play that 200-foot game, first guy back being the guy to take um, you know, the guy heading to the net. And so I, I think Fabry uh, may do better than Athanasiu with those defensive responsibilities, uh, just given what we've seen from Athanasiu when he played center. Very interesting. Okay, uh, and then last one is from Ben, who asks, in your opinion, what have been Iserman's best and worst moves so far as Red Wings GM? I don't know, Max. What do you think here? Yeah, I think the best one has got to be the Robbie Fabry trade, right? I mean, for one, one for one. I mean, it was one for one. For Jacob De La Rose, that's right. Uh, and Fabry has been one of the Red Wings' absolute best players this season. I mean, top four? Is he? Would you put him top three? Yeah, I mean, if you go by Evolving Wild's uh, goals above replacement, so this is akin to war for our baseball fans, Robbie Fabry is fourth on the team or sorry fifth on the team in goals above replacement so he is right there with the the rest of the wings uh players max do you have any guesses as to who rounds out that top 
It'd have to be Larkin, Mantha. Is it Heronic? Okay. So you've got Larkin and Mantha at one and two. And so you're putting uh, Philip Heronic at three. Is that who you're saying? Um, let's go Bert- Let's go Fabry 3, Bertuzzi 4, Heronic 5. Okay, so you are kind of close. So it's Larkin 1, Mantha 2, Philip Zadina wow. at 3, Philip Ronick at 4, Tyler Bertuzzi at 5, and then Fabry's at 6. And then again, the reason Fabry's so far down is because of his even strength defense against being much more similar to... Athanasiu as opposed to, to Larkin in that respect, who actually is a positive there. Fabry's offensive results are significantly dragged down. But yeah, I just had to throw the plug in that Philip Zadina right now is actually third, despite playing only 10 games, in goals above replacement for the West. I just pulled up the page, and a big part of that is he is far and away, he and Fabry, the two best power play players they have by a mile. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, Zadina, again, this is a very small sample size to be using goals above replacement in the first place, so I'm going to make that caveat known. Um, But because of how effective the power play has been with Zadina on it over his 10-game stretch, a lot of that success has been attributed to him and his presence on there. I mean, he does have points on four of the seven power play goals that the Wings have scored over his 10-game stretch. So, hey, he, you never know. We'll continue to watch, but he, he's been a big boost there. But, you know, all that being said, uh, you know, Fabry's clearly the best move that Eisenman's made. Worst move, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, maybe Pickard, because, because I think he's been a little bit of a disappointment statistically in Grand Rapids, but I also think you had to have someone do it, so I, maybe I have a hard time picking that one because you're going to have to sign some goalie to be your AHL goalie and that guy probably wasn't going to be a superstar um is it one of the trades I don't know I mean I, I didn't think yeah I mean a lot of people are going to pin you know the Perlini and Regula trade just because uh but I like Regula the process and... of that I uh, yeah and I I think I don't have necessarily an issue with that um you know honestly if I have to say a trade here it's going to be the Kyle Ward for Kasky deal simply because I think giving up on Kasky as early as as it was done is maybe not the best idea, but I think what we can say here safely is that none of the moves have been egregiously bad. I think they've all been very consistent with the process that Iserman's looking for. I think the Kasky deal is maybe the only one where I'd say I'd rather have Kasky, but it's not like he went out and got a 32-year-old, you know, consistent AHL veteran he got another guy who again has a potential tag to him yeah I think clearly Regula is the best asset that he gave he's given up so far but I also think that Perlini has a pedigree and I think when you're making those moves you don't know when you're at the time of the trade whether the the reclamation prospect as it were that's going to hit is Perlini or Fabry and and you're just trying to do three four five of those to make sure that you get one or two that hit Um, I got no problem with that one even though I think Ragul is probably the best asset they've given up yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree, and that's because even with Regula being the best asset you're giving up, his ceiling likely is not that high of a ceiling. You're not talking about a guy who is projected to step in as a number one defenseman uh, on a on an NHL team. You're talking about a guy who's, you know, if he's making the NHL, it's likely on that third pairing, uh, potentially at best a fringe second pairing guy, but. 
it's not like you gave up the world to to get Brendan Perlini here. So even though Perlini struggled, it's not necessarily a a, a huge loss. I'm gonna change my answer. My mine is 35th in the draft. Antitumisto over Nils Hoglander. Okay, yes, I, that that I will 100% give you. Or Nick Robertson. That's also fair because Nick Robertson was also really, really, really good. I mean, either of those guys I would have liked ahead of Tumisu, and I think you could have arguably said that you would have made the exact same, um, you know, move at that same time. Honestly, <laughs> if, with the wings sitting at 35th, I really wish they'd been able to jump up and get Arthur Kaliev, who went at 33rd, and he was a projected top 10 player in the draft who just slid and slid and slid and has been absolutely tearing it up in the OHL this year. But, yeah, I mean, if you're going to f- pick a guy after, uh, Hoglander definitely would have been that guy. Let's see. I'm trying to find the story I did. about. I profiled several uh, second-round picks that they could have done. I can't find the story. I want to see if I listed either of them. I feel like I listed Robertson, but I feel like Hoglander was one who I felt like they wouldn't even have a chance to get based on how... He was he was supposed to be a first round pick, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean he was projected to go at the end of the first round, so it wasn't the most surprising thing that he he slid. Um, but I mean Hoglander was a very good player, and even at fiftieth, uh, the Kings got Samuel Fagamo, who was an overager. Nick Robertson was fifty third. I mean, hey, he was one pick above uh, Master Simone. So again. Another guy that that was right there, but yeah, I mean, I can get totally on board with you uh, in terms of having those guys ahead of Tuomisto. I did have Robertson, did not have Hoaglander. I also had uh, Grava, who they did take, but they took him in the third, so that's something. A uh, little light gloating on a Sunday night here to wrap us up. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you're watching this week ahead? They, they've got a home game against Columbus, and then some time off before a game against the Toronto Maple Leafs, and then wrap up the pre-Christmas slate uh, against the Arizona Coyotes. No, I'm just hoping that the the game against the Maple Leafs is not as bad as the last one. Yeah, I mean, that it would be hard to be. <laughs> You, you never know, Max. I mean, hey, Sheldon Keefe apparently coaches the Kings on his off time because this this looked just as bad as that one. Yeah, no, it's it's fair, and I think you know the Leafs, especially as they they get some guys healthy. Yeah, they're they're pretty close to full health here now. Mitch Marner yeah, back I mean, in the they, fold. Andre is Andreas Janssen back yet? I don't recall seeing him play in the last game. Okay, so maybe, but maybe he will be by this weekend. We'll see. Um, yeah. it'll be interesting to, to watch, no doubt. What's your what's your number one storyline for the week, and then we'll 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 let everyone go. Number one, what Max? Storyline that you're watching for the week. Storyline number one storyline I'm watching is what the Wings are going to do with three goalies because I think Jimmy Howard is relatively close uh, to being back, and so you know Eric Comrie would need to clear waivers if he were to be sent down. Howard could certainly go for a conditioning stint so that the Wings could buy some time, but that, again, is only going to buy a couple of games for you. And so I I think with Howard getting relatively close, we're going to see the first interesting decision from the Wings here in terms of how they're going to carry their goalies for the rest of the year. Do you chance putting Comrie on waivers? Do you chance putting Bernier on waivers? I don't know that you can do that with how well that he's been playing 
um, off and on. And so eventually you're going to have to make the decision if you're carrying three goalies or not. So I'm going to, I'm going to watch for that this week. Yeah. I, I, I would think the conditioning stint makes the most sense there. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they do that potentially even uh, a little bit longer than sometimes you see just for that exact reason, like you're saying, to, to buy some time. Yep. All right. Uh, we will be back at it either way in the middle of this week. We will talk to you guys then. If you want to listen to our midweek episode, we're going to need you to subscribe to The Athletic. It's the best way to support the show, and uh, we can get you for a good deal if you, if you go to theathletic.com slash wingsforbreakfast. I believe it's 40% off. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. We do lots of, obviously, our, all of our midweek episodes. We've also got lots of written content on all the major teams. Uh, we'd love to have you sign up even though all the Detroit teams right now aren't that good. I promise the content still is. Uh, That'll do it for us this week, and uh, we'll talk to you again in the middle of the week. Thank you.